It was 27 years ago, but it feels still like yesterday. My partner and I were down in Florida for a big convention. We brought our families with us. Tomorrow was the big presentation. We were staying at the Hotel Edison in Miami Beach, an old, old hotel right in the middle of the party district. And at midnight, right in the courtyard, the bar started playing music really loudly. I finally fell asleep in the middle of the noise about 1.30, but I woke up with a start at 2 a.m. And the reason I woke up is that they had run out of original music and they were playing a song they had played two hours earlier. And my subconscious was really surprised at that. Hey, it's Seth. And this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about externalities. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Imagine your loved one is in hospice, ICU, or hospital at end of life, and you do not have the financial means to fly and be with them. At Give a Mile, we have people donate their travel miles, and we make these flights happen. From now to January 15th, you can donate your United Miles by going to bit.ly slash give a visit. That's bit.ly slash give a visit. And we can give this incredible gift to these loved ones so they can have one last chance to be together. I think it's pretty clear that the people in the bar were glad to be in the bar. They had a choice. But the people eight stories up who were trying to sleep before their big presentation, they weren't happy that a party was going on. The people who own the bar were making a profit, playing loud music and selling drinks. The people who owned the hotel were losing money because their customers were checking out. Is it okay for the bar to play music as loud as it wants 24 hours a day when it's costing their next door neighbor and the people who trusted their neighbor a good night's sleep? Or consider this, people who live near a factory that does plating of metal goods. They wake up in the morning and they notice little spots on their car. Those spots are caused by the paint room shooting off little tiny bits of paint that don't adhere to the metal. And yes, it adheres to the cars a block, two blocks, five blocks away. Is it okay for the factory to not put in the filters that are needed to keep the paint from landing on other people's cars? Or is it sort of a situation of if you don't want paint to land on your car, don't park outside or don't live near the factory? Or what about the person who lives down the street from a place that roasts coffee? Because in short doses, freshly roasted coffee smells delicious. But when you live downwind, not so fun. It's an externality. It is a cost that is paid by someone who isn't making the profit. Where I live, by the Hudson River, there was a big, beautiful, old brick building. And some entrepreneurs, using that word in quotation marks, bought it in the 1970s, and then went up and down the sides of the river, going to factories and saying, we'll take your toxic wastes, your PCBs, the stuff that you're no longer allowed to dump in the river, and we'll do it at a discount. We'll haul your toxic waste for cheap, and they took it off their hands and put it in the building. And when the building was filled, they moved on, leaving us with a Superfund site 
to clean up. All of these things are obvious examples of places where most people agree that externalities are a real problem, that there's a rule against it. You can't just dump your stuff in the river if it's going to poison the people downstream. But as industrial economies have grown and grown and grown, and companies have become hooked on their race to the bottom, we have more externalities now to deal with than ever before. The ocean is filled top to bottom with plastic, and the people who produce the plastic don't have to pay to clean it up. Is that okay? I'm wondering then if it's possible to move externalities, to be able to let the market do what it does really well, which is solve problems by identifying them and coming up with a profitable way to serve a need, to let the market focus on solving the problems that externalities cause. So if we think, for example, about how we could charge a toll to a certain kind of truck that does a certain kind of damage, well, pretty soon the market's going to come up with a way to replace that truck rather than pay the toll. Instead of banning something outright the way it makes sense to ban outright a company dumping paint on the cars of people who are parked nearby, we create a marketplace. And in that marketplace, the industrialists focus their energy on reducing their externalities because they're not externalities anymore. They are part of their cost structure. And where all of this is leading is simple. I am not going to be able to fix the music at the Hotel Edison, but it is worth thinking about what we're going to do about carbon. Because thanks to lying and lobbying and general ignorance about the state of the world, we have wasted 25 years when we could be addressing the significant problem that carbon is going to cause for every human being on Earth. Now we need to hurry. Well, we're not going to hurry by implementing draconian rules that hinder world economies. The game theory just doesn't support it. Because if countries defect from this regime, well, the industrialists in those countries will profit because they can dump their externalities on lots and lots of other countries and the companies that profit figure the money that is being made will insulate themselves somehow from the cataclysm that is being created. But what? But what if instead of banning things or just wringing our hands, we let the market pay attention to the problem that the industrialists have caused? And the way you do that is by giving people a carbon dividend. And the carbon dividend is pretty simple. Establish a baseline. And everybody who uses less than that baseline in carbon gets a check, cash money. And people who use more than that amount of carbon have to pay to do so. There are lots of ways to implement this. Cap and trade is one of them. But basically what it comes down to is this. The ability to put carbon into the world becomes an asset, an asset that you can value, that you can sell, that you can come up with ways to produce, to acquire, to trade. That once it is an asset that has value, well, then we have a lot of opportunities. One opportunity is that it will inherently subsidize things that don't 
put carbon into the world. So if I can put a windmill on top of my house that generates electricity, not only will I get the electricity for free, I will get paid because I'm using less carbon than someone who doesn't. Or if someone comes up with an efficient way to sequester carbon out of the air for, let's say, $50 a barrel, and the price of this asset is more than that, they'll do it more. And then we're back to that invisible hand that the industrialists like so much. Because once the system is in place without lobbying or voting, people will work to ratchet it forward. And as industry gets better and better at creating ways to earn these carbon credits, well, then the government can step in and increase how much one of these credits is worth. They will be lobbied to do so by the people who have figured out how to make them because they want them to be worth more. And then, instead of the industrialists pushing for externalities to be ignored, many of them will be pushing for externalities to be valued even more highly. In addition to that, the people who are used to getting the dividend, because they are buying things more carefully, because they are paying attention to their footprint, because they are coming up with ways to reduce how much carbon they use, those people will also be pushing for the dividend to go up. The dividend will go up as carbon becomes more expensive to put into the world. It's not hard for me to imagine that it won't take very long at all for the race to reduce carbon, to sequester carbon, to lower the externalities that are created by industry. It won't take very long at all for it to have a meaningful effect on the amount of crap we're dumping into the world. So it's not going to be easy because you still have the game theory problem of not all countries signing up. However, if you address the fact that it's profitable for a country to sign up for this regime, the pressure will be on for each country to be part of it. There is a long history of ignoring externalities. Well, it's not in my backyard that one of the things that we've done as we've striated our society is we've dumped stuff into other people's backyards. But now, finally, it's in everyone's backyard. And as we think about how we can bring externalities inside the organization where better decisions will get made, bring them into the buying cycle so that better decisions will get made, we can address lots of the long-term significant issues that we've been wrestling with. It's not going to happen overnight, but it will happen more quickly if we understand it. Externalities are not free. There are no side effects. There's just effects. And every time we make something, buy something, ship something, dispose of something, there are effects. And now we can't ignore them because we have to live with them for a really long time. Yes, the roof is on fire. But maybe this time we can do something about it instead of just playing the song over and over again. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with a couple questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. 
But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any other episode, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. While you're there, you can submit an ad or you can check out the show notes. Hi, Seth. This is Shannon in Toronto, Canada. I was just listening to your telemedicine episode, and I was wondering how you think we could align your vision of a you know much more convenient healthcare system using telemedicine with the notion of healthcare as a public good or a right, um, you know, coming from a publicly funded healthcare system, I do expect some level of inconvenience in engaging with that system at any given time, um, just because I expect that that system is using its finite resources, you know, doctors and nurses and directing them towards the person in the system who needs them the most. And, you know, when I show up at any given time, maybe my need is not the greatest need at that moment. And so I may need to wait a bit or, um, you know, have a bit of, of friction in, in my engagement with that system. Um, so m- my concern with your vision might be that the, the system was being, that was being articulated seemed like we were shifting more and more towards a system where the resources get uh, diverted based on the ability to pay and not necessarily the greatest level of need. And I'm wondering if you had thoughts about how that could be avoided. Anyway, thank you for all that you do. And I hope you have a wonderful holiday. Bye. Thank you for this. It led to all sorts of thinking on my part. I could make six podcasts about your question. In fact, I've already made at least one, the one about the Aravind Eye Hospital, founded by Dr. V in India. India now produces some of the best eye doctors in the world because of this hospital. Here's the thing you're not allowed to say at the Aravind Eye Hospital. Well, It's not like they're paying anything for this cataract surgery. That in fact, the cataract surgery you would get at Aravind for free or for $135 if you chose the high-priced route, which simply gives you nicer linens and maybe a private room, regardless of which level of service you paid for, you would get cataract surgery as good or better as you can get in Los Angeles or in London because you're not allowed to say, well, they're not paying anything. My telemedicine rant had nothing whatsoever to do with telemedicine as a luxury good, quite the opposite. It had to do with figuring out how to be patient-focused and averse to bureaucracy that doesn't add any value. 
that the bureaucracy surrounding healthcare in my country and in many other countries, every step along the way probably had good intent behind it. But then it sticks around. It sticks around far longer than it should. It becomes superstition and it becomes a way of enforcing power roles. Now, one of the questions that came in about the episode was, well, if the second doctor hears what the first doctor said, you won't get an honest second opinion. There needs to be a blindfold, an earmuff between the two of them. And given human nature, that is probably correct. But one of the reasons that human nature amplifies one doctor agreeing with the other is because the system has trained them to do that. What we need to figure out how to do, whether someone is paying for it or not, is begin with first principles. Why are we even talking to this patient? What is the purpose of this consultation? Why is there a clinic here? What is the interaction we're having supposed to do? Because it turns out, and this has been proven again and again and again, more people will get more healthy if we disperse treatment widely, if we help people change their lifestyle, the story they tell themselves about their health, if we get in touch with people sooner when they are dealing with a health problem. None of the things that we are trying to maximize are actually increased when we have a $100,000 a night suite at some fancy hospital in San Francisco for one person. But the system, pressures in the system have pushed it in that direction. So here's this chance with telemedicine, just like we had a chance with email, to say, wait a second, what would happen if we embraced abundance instead of scarcity? Now, email isn't perfect because we forgot to put boundaries on it, because we let the spammers in, because the API is too open. But with telemedicine, we have a chance to bring the right information to the right people for the right reason at the right time at extraordinarily low cost. That instead of a doctor being able to see two or three people in an hour, she can see 10 or 15. And maybe if we set it up right, have higher job satisfaction, not lower job satisfaction. What we are talking about here is the spread of ideas and doing it in a way that is still custom and bespoke and appropriate, but not burdened with quite so much overhead and waste. Hello again, Seth. This is Nathan in the Jackson, Mississippi area. And I just got finished listening to your telemedicine episode. It was fascinating. Some of your ideas I thought were great. And because of my own experience with being a patient in telemedicine, I had a lot of questions come up, but there was actually one question that came up due to a single phrase that you used, and it was that all of us are smarter than any of us. And I feel like this has been proven to be true in some ways, especially with things like Wikipedia. I mean, the collective editing is the reason that it is what it is, and it's fantastic. But it makes me wonder, if all of us are smarter than any one of us, why is it that it seems like today we're coming to these ridiculous and often false conclusions about certain topics or you know, even conspiracy theories, that sort of thing. So if all of us are smarter than any of us, shouldn't we be able to avoid this kind of thing? 
maybe I'm just thinking about it the wrong way, but it's something that it was the first question that came to mind. Anyway, I hope you have a safe, healthy, and enjoyable holiday season and looking forward to what happens in 2022. Thank you. Thank you for this question, Nathan. This is one of the two, maybe 10 great quotes on the internet. As you know, Abraham Lincoln said that 45% of the statistics on the internet aren't true, and he was right. Stuart Brand famously said, information wants to be free, but that's not really what he said. He said, information wants to be free or information wants to be expensive. And in this case, all of us are smarter than any of us has a parenthetical, which is, but on any given issue, one person is probably the one with the right answer. And you're highlighting the difference between the crowd knowing something that one person might not know that they need to know. The idea that if we can tap into the wisdom of community, we can make each of us a little bit more aware and a little smarter. But at the same time, as Winston Churchill said, democracy is a terrible form of government, except for all the other kinds. And the thing is that we have a media problem right now, which is we are amplifying the angriest voices. We are giving a microphone to trolls, to people who are seeking attention, not the hard work of actually showing up, doing the work, and governing. And so if you want to build an open community, and I am so lucky to be running one right now, it's all about the boundaries. The number of things that are open to a vote where the loudest people get the most votes is very low. That what we have, and we've seen this in science, is a chance to have an open system, but with boundaries and rules. That we have peers reviewing journal articles. That we have this incremental cycle of, oh, Semmelweis wrote this, but he was wrong about that. And that incremental shift is how we ended up knowing so much about the natural world. So no, I don't want to mob running anything, but I do like it when people who are leading are also listening and discovering things they didn't think they needed to know before they set out on their journey. Thanks to everybody for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas. You got access to information. That's awesome. But when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical. But it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. 
not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.